Welcome to Creative Places and Faces, the podcast that explores how places can affect our creativity and lives. Irish author Jackie DeBurka interviews artists, authors, and all sorts of creatives from around the world. Travel virtually and explore the world creatively. What's meant for you won't pass you by, as the saying goes. And this applies to today's guest, both in her own writing success, which came a bit later in life, and also how I discovered her online. I came across a review, and once I read Venus and Pink Marble, I was absolutely sure the poet Gaynor Kane would be a perfect guest. So, Gaynor, let's jump right into the theme of the podcast with one of my favourite quotes, which is Anita Desai, wherever you go becomes a part of you somehow. How do you feel about this concept? I think that's very true, Jackie, especially when you're in new places, you find out about the culture and the history of the place and try to connect with the people there. More so, you know, than when you go on holiday and you lie on a sun lounger and you don't really interact with anything about the place or the people there. Yeah, that's definitely true. And which places are important to you and your creativity and why, Gaynor? Most definitely my hometown, Belfast. I feel very much a part of the place and it has a wealth of culture. You know, the Crescent Arts Centre is particularly good place for my creativity. I've attended loads of events there, festivals and writing workshops. I love a trip around the Ulster Museum, Botanic Gardens, and closer to home, Belmont Park, Victoria Park, around the docks, the Titanic Museum. And then moving further afield, I'm particularly fond of Galway. I have family there about the last 25 years we've been going to Galway probably once a year. Is that Galway City or the county? Galway City. An amazing city, isn't it? It is, it is. And I love Dublin too. I think I'm a homebird at heart. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that really comes through in, in your work as well on various levels. In a way, then, I suppose my next question, maybe it's slightly redundant in your case, but <laughs> anyhow, let's let's go there anyway. So if you had the choice to choose one of those places and stay there until the pandemic is under control and we can all travel safely, which place would it be? <laughs> yeah, you've guessed it. Um, I actually <laughs> wouldn't go anywhere else. I would I would stay at home um, and be close to my parents and the rest of my family. Sure, I get that. I do get that. Let's start to explore going from, you know, the beginning when you were born, just to get a really good feeling for your experiences, your connections and your and your work. When and where, Gaynor, were you born? I was born in East Belfast in September of 1970. I lived in a little end terrace. It seemed always very important that it was noted that it was an end terrace. I think that was my mummy's way of raising the status of the house a little bit because it was on the end and we had an alleyway down the side of it, Um, (laughs) almost (laughs) semi-detached. I went to primary school very close by, so I was able to walk to school. And um, I had to fight with my mum to be allowed to walk by myself. She was very protective of me growing Mm -hmm. up. So I just think I was 
nearly eight before I was allowed to walk to school by myself. And what kind of childhood memories do you have of East Belfast, both, you know, on your walks to school and any other sort of times that you went out with family members or friends? I mean, obviously, 1970 was very much at the height of the troubles. And I was very lucky to be sheltered from all that. You know, our part of the the city was very quiet. I wasn't really aware of checkpoints or army until on a Saturday we went into town and there were security gates stopping sort of free movement around the city centre. So, you know, women had to open their handbags and let the the soldiers search their bags. And that was really the only time that it was obvious that there was something you know, going on in the city. Apart from that, East Belfast, where we were, was very quiet and um, there was a great sense of community. For people who aren't Irish and wouldn't have that much knowledge of the layout of Belfast, can you explain a little bit more about that, Gaynor, what it means, the area you're in? Because, of course, I've interviewed, for example, the likes of Henry MacDonald, who was in an entirely different part of Belfast um, and also is slightly older than you, but even still, you know, can you explain a bit more about that for the for the listeners, please? So um, East Belfast is the area that starts at the River Lagan and moves out towards Stormont and Dundonald. So it takes in the areas of Castlereagh, Bloomfield, Orangefield, the Newton Arch Road, the Albert Bridge Road, the docks, the shipyard, Harlington Wolf, the city airport is in East Belfast. And um, it's, it stretches out to... Hollywood, Dundonald and up into the Castlereagh Hills. Mm-hmm. Um, so the suburbs are very green, you know, and surrounded by the Castlereagh Hills and the Craig Antlet Hills. And um, the inner city part of East Belfast would be the Newton Arch Road, the Short Strand and the bottom of the Woodstock Road. You mentioned in our research period, you used to go to like Victoria Park with, uh, I think it was one of your grandparents. Yes, um, I got sent two miles on, on summer holidays to Sydney <laughs> to stay with my nanny. Um, uh-huh. And uh, we normally walked that. Um, we would visit her on a Friday most weeks and we would walk. My dad didn't always have a car. And then in the summer, I went to stay for a couple of weeks with my two cousins. And I would have stayed in Sydney on holiday with them. Um, My nanny was a great bowler. So at least three times a week, we would go to Victoria Park with her while she spent the afternoon bowling on the outside green. Uh Um, Quite often, we were allowed to go and explore the park, look at the boats out on the boating lake, look in through the railings of the outdoor swimming pool, which isn't there Mm -hmm. anymore. It was lovely, you know, just really nice change of scenery, I suppose. And it was our holiday, even though we were only, you know, (laughs) from home. (laughs) Yeah. Are there any poems that you've written that you feel connects with those memories of, of that time? Well, I have a poem about a tree in Victoria Park, so it doesn't talk about the people, but it talks about the place. It's called Goliath Tree, Victoria Park. When the storm with the Irish boy's name came, my leaves fell early, were swept aside to dry and curl like arthritic hands of a redundant shipyard worker. In them you might see rusty bakers, handmade paper, black pepper pods, burnt Belfast brick. Freshly ploughed fields, the speckled plumage of a thrush, 
a wooden jetty over gently flowing water. They are paperweight, lighter than a pebble, heavier than a feather, with the strength of a mahogany boat. On water they will float. Lift my leaf, hold it cradled in your hands. Let curled fingers cup your cheek. You might smell where fresh water meets sea tide, the scent of the park, the oval, the yard, and our industrial ghosts. That is absolutely beautiful. I haven't been to Belfast for decades, but it really conjures up, you know, that that part of Belfast that obviously I know that you're you've written about. Now, something else, apart from your mum being a twin that struck me when, when I was researching Gaynor, you are an only child like myself. Do you feel at all that being an only child, would that have magnified any of the effects of the formative places or people that you've had in your life? I think it probably did, although um, I'm not sure that I would have been aware of it. You know, I had a small family, a small friendship circle. It was always quite content with my own company as I think a lot of only children are Mm -hmm. you learn to use your imagination and find play where you can but I was I was always aware of the very good neighbours that we had in our street and that sense of community and you know my mummy knew everyone at the school gates when she left me to school it was a very close-knit place Mm, it's interesting because, yeah, I think as an only child, it doesn't matter what part of the world you've been brought up in, that you have that inclination both to use your imagination more freely, because, of course, you don't have uh, siblings at home to mm-hmm. play with. And at the same time, to be more likely to reach out to your immediate uh, community around you for the same reason, don't you think? Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Were you encouraged creatively by any teachers or family members, Gaynor, as you were growing up? It would be unfair for me to say no. I mean, my mum bought me a lot of art materials and would have given me a lot of praise if I'd drawn anything or written anything. Similarly, in school, you know, my English teacher was very encouraging of my work, along with my art teacher. I became a school librarian and spent a lot of time in the library with friends, although very often we used it to play rounders in rather than reading books. <laughs> and as a place to go at lunch and break that was inside and warm. So would you would you say, Gaynor, that you had a love of books like starting off fairly young in life? Yes, because we were a working class family and there wasn't a lot of extra money to be spent on luxuries and I think in the 1970s you know things like books were luxuries so yes being in the library gave me that availability of books. So let's talk about as you were getting a little bit older your like kind of more coming of age period of life did you work immediately or did you go off and study where did you live what was the story at that time? There was never any discussion that I would go to university. It, it just wasn't talked about. I don't. I don't even think when I was sixteen or seventeen, I, I even really knew about university or that you know there there was that option. So I, I didn't get a job when I finished uh, fifth year, and I went back into lower six and done some typing and GCSE accounting and was furiously applying for jobs. Um, I applied 
to be an assistant in the Ulster Museum. I applied to be a lab technician for Niels Flower, along with all the other standard administrative type roles, receptionist, mm-hmm. secretary. So in the end, it was my careers teacher who got me an interview with a firm of structural engineers over in the university area of the city. And um, I think she sent three of us from school to have the same interview at the same place. And I was the, the one who was fortunate to get the job. How was that first job for you? Look, it was great. I really loved it. Um, it was mm-hmm. a small company. I actually met my husband there because his father was a draftsman for that company. About six months later, Michael started as a, a junior draftsman in the company. And that's how I got to know him. So um, you met your husband quite young, obviously. You were just out of school in your first job. Yes, but we were friends for a long time and we were doing our own thing. And then a couple of years after that, we both moved on. We weren't working together anymore uh, when we became more romantically involved. And were you still living in your family house at this stage, Gaynor? Yes, you were. So I lived at home with my parents until Michael and I then bought our own house. And you bought a house with Michael, your husband, in a very similar area or you moved a little into a different area in East Belfast? Um, Our first house was just off the Craigie Road, so it was still in East Belfast. But uh, Michael was from West Belfast and um, I was a Protestant and he was a Catholic. Ah, okay. uh It was the early 90s. Things were still quite volatile. So whilst I felt that I was on home turf, he didn't maybe feel as comfortable. We had bought a house that needed a lot of work done to it. So we spent 12 months uh, breaking our backs and taking plaster off walls and putting new floors down and trying to do a lot of it ourselves. We're in our early 20s and really didn't know what we, we were doing. You know, I stuck carpet down with grip fill, which is like a no-nail substitute. <laughs> <laughs> but during that time, house prices rose quite substantially and um, we made £10,000 on the sale of that property, which we then invested in a building site in Kirkcubbon down the Arts Peninsula. And we knew we wanted to try and build a house and we'd been looking at sites. And the night we went down to to visit the one in Kirkcubbon, it was a, I think it was like a late June evening, it was sunny. And we drove down into Kirkcubbon and the Orange Arch was up across the main street outside the Orange Hall. And at the same time as that, the down GAA flags were flying from houses, the red and black flags of the down team. And Quite a kinda, contrast, obviously. Yeah, yeah, we kind of yeah. give each other known looks, you know, um, seeing these two cultures side by side. Almost like representing yourself and Michael, obviously being married, coming from the two different cultures to some extent, no? Yes, absolutely. Um, we weren't married at that stage because ah, okay, much okay. to disappointment of some family members, we had lived in <laughs> sin. <laughs> yeah, different days, isn't it amazing? Because yeah. it's not that long ago, really, you know. <laughs> 
So, yes, we were still unwed at that stage uh, and remained so for another few years whilst we built the house and um, <laughs> lived in a caravan. So where were you living? Were you on site in the caravan? Or? Yes. We made it through one winter and it was approaching the second winter and the house was almost finished but didn't have, you know, things like, doors hung between the rooms and skirting boards fitted but I just couldn't spend another winter in the caravan so we went ahead and moved in and let you know things be finished around us just to get out of the mm. caravan. That's that's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> who yeah, who wants know, a winter a winter in Ireland in a caravan when you can actually yeah, be inside a house? Yeah. yeah. yeah understandable. The gas fire go really low and um Michael would have to go outside and shake a gas bottle to try and get the <laughs> get the flames to, to rise again <laughs> yeah but still still in all definitely like a team building experience between yourself and Michael to have gone through I suppose yeah and again we did a lot of the sort of labour in ourselves the bits that didn't fall to the, the trades because we sort of subcontracted it out to a joiner a plumber you know so we'd know overall uh, building contractor so mm-hmm. we were the the on-site skivvies and you know, I remember the day we put the the concrete into the footings of the foundation. You know, I was in Wellington's up to my calves in concrete, you know, shoveling it round so that it would be flat and tapping it out with a long piece of wood with my father-in-law. And, yeah. Yeah. But that's, I mean, I think it's great that you got stuck in. Talk talk to us a little bit about, Gaynor, the actual area then, the surrounding area um, in the Arts Peninsula where you obviously bought your site and built? It's a beautiful landscape. The whole uh, Arts Peninsula is outstanding and there's loads of little towns along the way. So it sort of stretches on one side from Newton Arts to Porta Ferry and on the other, you know, it goes down Bangor, Donaghadee, Ballywalter, Ballyhalbert, Porta Vogue and lots of lovely beaches, little coves, Fishing ports, Port of Oge. My uncle lives in Port of Oge. Um, mm-hmm. We actually lived there for a few years too. Um, it's a fishing village. It's just the most beautiful area. And Strangford Lock itself has loads of little islands on it. The Brent geese come there every year to stay over the winter. Strangford Lock, I'm familiar with through through two of, of season one's guests also, um, Anne Smith who's a stained glass artist mm-hmm. uh, and Helen Sharkey, who is a visual artist, but she's also in the market in St. George's in Belfast from Thursday to Saturday. So that is way up the top of my list to visit whenever I'm back over to Ireland, that area. Um, yeah, you'll have to. It's absolutely beautiful. And then on the other side of Strangford Law, there's gorgeous towns and villages too. Um, and, you know, there's the likes of Nandrum, which is an old monastic site. There's just so much history to the area as well. You've got the contrast of really being such a home bird, you know, from your early days in East Belfast to putting down roots. And that's such such a beautiful area that you're in now. And you mentioned the history. Do you feel you've absorbed imprints of these places within yourself? I think I have. And I think they were always there because... My dad comes from Newtonards and his people came from Corridor. So I feel there's there was already that connection for me. Uh, 
was probably different from Michael because he didn't have any connections, but he settled in so quickly. I mean, we were so lucky with our neighbours. People joke about rural areas and how you'll always be considered a blow-in. But that may be somewhat true, but I don't feel that we were thought of like that. You know, our neighbours were very quick to welcome us and to to bring us into their home. And, you know, we became an extension to their family. You know, they invited us to all the, the family get-togethers and the little school that Tara then joined. Um, it was an integrated school um, and mm-hmm. it only had 100 pupils. So while she was going to primary school, she knew absolutely everyone in the school. That's quite a different experience to what most children go through, isn't it? Yes, it is. I imagine that uh, instills more confidence in a young person. Um, that's an interesting... <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I think, obviously, I'm biased. I think she's wonderful and I do think she's confident, um, particularly now. You know, she's 20 now and has found herself. But yeah, she had a lovely childhood and we, we lived outside of Kirkcubbin. So um, she was able to go off and play in the fields and... And because I'd been so protected as as a child, I think I went the other direction. It's interesting, you know, when you're comparing yourself to your daughter, and I'm guessing from your description, she she's an only child as well, is she, Gaynor? She is, yeah. Yeah, I just thought from how you were speaking there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting how you're comparing yourself to, and, and I think you said her name was Tara, was it? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, yes, it is interesting because as your mother was so protective, but it also meant that you had more time to nurture your imagination, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That's true. Just talking about the places around you, you've mentioned the amazing, not even just acceptance, but I mean, obviously the neighbours that you have surrounding you in that, in that area is not only acceptance, it's obviously they really connect with you because people don't do that, you know, just as by way of acceptances. Do you feel that all of that has affected your creative output? Uh, I don't know that it has. I mean, at that time, I wasn't thinking of being creative. I was just enjoying the place I lived and um, I wanted to be part of the community there. You know, I didn't I didn't want to be the blow-in. So um, I got to know lots of people socially before Tara was born and then through, you know, the school playground when she'd come along um and then I had postnatal depression after Tara was born so for a while I was not in a good place what brought me to being creative again later in life was I went to see a community psychiatric nurse and mm-hmm. he talked me through some stages of improving my mental health Afterwards, I wanted to do something for me because it kind of felt part of the issue was I no longer felt like myself. You know, I felt like Mm -hmm. people just looked at me and saw a mother and they didn't actually see me. So Mm -hmm. I went back to tech and I did um, GCSE in psychology. I really loved learning again. Um, and it, it really sparked an interest in learning new things. And a lot of the class went on to do A-level psychology. And I thought, no, I'm just going to cut out the A-levels. Um, and I enrolled with the Open University to do a degree in humanities. 
Um, okay. yeah. I did read I did read in one of your other interviews in a print publication that that was around the time of your 40th birthday you were doing Open University. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I make a joke about it, it was a bit of a midlife crisis instead of having <laughs> a sports car. That's um, what it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just picked subjects that I enjoyed. So I did world archaeology and Greek and Roman myths and, you know, some literature modules as well and as my final module um I picked creative writing and that's when the writing started really before that I had never saw myself as a creative person it must have been in there you know I don't think all of a sudden you can become creative if it was never there in the first place I think as well Gaynor saying it's definitely there of course it depends on somebody's circumstances in life and you know in your case through postnatal depression, you took a different path that, that brought you to, you know, to where you are now in terms of your writing creativity. Yeah. But even if you think about it, how many of your friends were getting stuck in and doing renovation work with their husbands to be, you know? <laughs> yeah, not very many. I mean, I think nowadays that's much more likely, you know, we've so many of those programs on the TV, you know, it's just much more likely that anybody would be kind of getting into it but not so much at that stage I don't think so. No although Sarah Beanie was around at the time when Tara was young I took a career break from work and bought a little house in Belfast and renovated it while she went to nursery school. Okay Um, okay. uh, Sarah Beanie is very much to blame for her property ladder program and making me think that I could go and that year, Michael bought me a ten-pound sledgehammer for my birthday. Um, okay. um, <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. Yeah, I went and took some frustrations out on a wall or two. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah. learned how to tile. My daddy came down, taught me how to build stud walls. Yeah, I learned a lot of practical skills. So no, I, I only brought that up really because, of course, you know, apart from the, the house in Belfast that you've just talked about, you know, it was quite obvious that I think there has to be a level of creativity to to want to get to stuck in. You know, I know I know yourself and Michael made profit from, you know, your first renovation and all that type of stuff. But mm-hmm. I think that takes a certain level of creativity. Yeah, it does. And it takes vision when you're looking at a two-dimensional house plan on a piece of paper. I think you need to be able to use your imagination to envisage what it's going to look like in three dimensions. Definitely. So look, what about holidays between all the all these other things? Did you go off on holidays? Like, uh, did you have a honeymoon? Did you go off later, you know, as a family on holidays? What other places have had an effect on you that you've visited out, outside of your own area there? Um, yes, yeah, so Michael and I did manage to have a few holidays and one of those was to Rhodes. Oh, Rhodes. Whereabouts in Rhodes? Falaraki. But we did explore the old town of Rhodes itself and we went Cost, which is to the beautiful. market, yeah. the hydrofoil and went to Kos for the day. It was just beautiful too. And there was a heat wave that year. Some days it was 40 degrees. I used to go to... Well, I've been to Rhodes Town, and obviously you don't go to Rhodes and not spend some time in the town, but um used to go a lot to Lindos on holidays. Oh, Lindos is beautiful. We took a Isn't night to Lindos. Actually, I think that was a boat trip where we went round the, the coast um by boat to Lindos and went up to the castle. So Rhodes is somewhere that made an, an impact on you, you know, from the holidays you've taken. Were there any other places? 
our honeymoon was interesting. Um, mm -hmm. We were meant to go to Jamaica. So we flew to Heathrow to board the plane to Jamaica there and we managed to get an upgrade because we were uh, honeymooners. Well, we weren't honeymooners. We were going there to get married. And so we were sitting in first class and uh, the pilot announced that the plane was delayed takeoff because the Jamaicans had started to riot over mm -hmm. the budget and fuel prices. Oh, we thought perhaps we'd fly the next day. They put us up in a hotel near Wembley and the following day we went back to Heathrow and the Jamaicans were still at it. They were out in the streets in protest and it had all got very violent. So the flight then ended up being cancelled and I stood in Heathrow with my wedding dress and a little tiny bag as my hand luggage and we had to choose a new destination to go to get married. Um, uh -huh. uh, to get married in Jamaica, we'd had to apply six months beforehand for the wedding licence and send all our documentation. So there were only a few places that we could go that we'd issue a special licence. And we picked Antigua and it was just beautiful. Just a really lovely island. Um, we hired a car and we did a trip around the island. We went to St. John's. We had to go to St. John's to get the capital of Antigua to get the special marriage license. Okay. And we also had to go there because when we had unpacked, Michael discovered that he'd left his wedding suit hanging up on the back of the door in Kirkcoven. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> yes, uh, at that point I called it off. I just thought, no, <laughs> the gods are trying to tell me something here. You know, first of all, we don't get to go to Jamaica and now you have your suit with you. You know, this, this wedding is not meant to be. But okay. um, I calmed down. He got a nice pair of chinos out of the Levi store, which his his mum was not all that impressed with. But uh, he was comfortable. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it sounds, it sounds like it was chinos or no or no wedding, no. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was just a wonderful holiday, and it was just beautiful. So. One other place that uh, you mentioned much earlier on when we were when we were touching on on some of your favorite places was Dublin, and also you know when we were preparing for our chat today, you you said that you had a bit of a a night in a Garda station, Garda being a police station for for people who aren't Irish. I'm sorry, but it's completely irresistible for me to ask a bit more more about Dublin and that. Mm -hmm. So um, I was 18 at the time and. My friend Tracy and I had spent a weekend in the Burlington in Dublin and in Ballsbridge there. And whilst we'd been out, we'd met a couple of fellas. You know, um, we decided to go down again on the train to see if we could find them, basically, and <laughs> meet up with them again. Long story short, we missed the last train home. And, you know, we, we'd run onto the platform and watched it trundling out of the station you know we were that close but not close enough to actually be on the train we wandered around the streets devastated at missing our, our only means of transport home 
And the next thing, we were sitting on the pavement at um, St. Stephen's Green. The next thing, a car pulled up and it was the guards. They asked us, were we okay? And we started to cry. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And when we had stopped crying, we told them what was wrong. Mm. And so they drove us around the city from hostel to convent to other establishments trying to find us a bed for the night and they were unsuccessful so they took us to Connolly Street Guard Station and allowed us to spend the night on hard plastic chairs in the medical room. Oh dear okay yeah. I was I was I was I was so trying to predict what you know how come you ended up in a guard station. <laughs> So listen, let's let's talk a bit about uh, you know a huge background now, very very great background about you know all the places and everything. Let's go back to when you you were studying your creative writing, obviously at the Open University, mm-hmm. um, and your first short collection of poetry. It was published in two thousand and eighteen. What inspired you to write about this topic and stickleback? My stickleback is a collection of six poems about the early aviatrixes. And how it came about was I'm a member of Women Allowed NI, which is a a group set up in 2016 to raise the profile of women writers in or from Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And as part of that group, I have organised many events to give the members a platform for reading their work, one of which it was cancelled last year, but up until then it had been an annual collaboration between the Eastside Choir, um, which is a choir attached to Eastside Arts and Women Allowed. And what happens as part of that is the choir have a set they're going to sing and the writers get given one of the pieces of music to use as inspiration to write a new piece of work. So mm-hmm. the event's lovely. Um, it normally takes part in um, St Martin's Church at the bottom of the Newtonards Road. And the choir will sing the song and then the writer will respond with their poem or piece of flash fiction. Okay. It's a really interesting concept. It is. And so that year... I got a song called Lightning, um, which is a really quirky tune. And whilst doing some research, I came across this wonderful story about one of the early women pilots who attempted to fly across the Atlantic in Mm -hmm. a little um, moth plane, but was struck by lightning and ended up crashing into somewhere on the coast of Malaysia, I think it was. So that inspired one poem out of the collection. Then I was in a a big shop and saw a bike on sale for 99 pence, and it was about the women pilots. And I just used that book as inspiration and ended up writing um, some more poems about their lives, about the challenges. And... Um, that formed the basis then of that small collection of poetry. I was just really quite fascinated with with how, you know, I think that the topic itself is very, very interesting. 
but mm-hmm. I was just fascinated, you know, knowing from my research, obviously knowing your background and so on and so forth. I was fascinated as to how, how you came to, you know, to write about the aviatrixes. Um, I absolutely loved your thematically focused pamphlet, Memory Forest. Um, particularly just to, to explain to the listeners, you know, that it's about, um, uh, well, I, you, you'll probably explain it a lot better than I will, Gaynor. Talk about it. And I'm fascinated also how that came into being because it's another, it's another, uh, amazing topic, amazing topic indeed. Um, so Memory Forest is a, is a collection of poetry that's all about burial rituals and last wishes. Um, it started as part of a conversation I had with my dad one day. I was driving him down to his his club and it was a few months before his 80th birthday and I brought up the subject of what he wanted to do for his, his birthday. I meant, you know, did he want a party? And uh, I said, what will we do for your birthday? And he said, why don't we have my wake? <laughs> and I I said, I'll catch yourself on. You have a few more years to go yet. And he went, no, but I really quite like the idea of um, hearing what people think of me, you know, and what stories we have to tell about me. And he says, I'd like to see if your your mother was crying. Um, <laughs> um, so we didn't have his wake. We had a, a party, but it struck a chord with me so that became one of the titles of a poem in the pamphlet I want to be awake for my wake and it's really just a poem based around what my my dad said that day it went from there then I started to research different um cultures around the globe and what they did with their dead and how they celebrated their lives and I just found it was so interesting how there's some generic things in in the treatment of of our dead and the celebration of their lives and and there's also some things that are are very different in in other cultures mm-hmm. and then you know I also researched in the western world you know what are the sort of trends now you know like the ecological burial where you um are planted with a seed and you end up becoming the uh, the fertilizer for a new tree, and mm-hmm. um, you know how your ashes, if you're cremated, can be turned into gemstones. And I just find the whole subject fascinating, and it was very easy to to write about it. Um, it is it is a fascinating subject. W- one of the things that popped into my mind, Gainer, when I was reading the poems in Memory Forest is. How did you connect these places around the world that you had researched, obviously, you know, with their rituals and then match them up with local settings? I find I find that really fascinating. <laughs> yes. So there, there's a process and I think it's in the Philippines where they exhume their dead and they they have a party with them, basically. And they, they try and do it as often as they can, but at least every seven years. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll. You know they'll make savings throughout those years in order to be able to afford to to have this celebration with their loved ones, and I I don't know how it happened, but I had the idea of talking about that method of of celebrating the dead, but putting it in a local 
setting. So I have people, a family, um, going up to exhume their va- their father who's buried in Dundonald um, Cemetery, which is the the closest cemetery to me and um, the cemetery where my nanny is buried. And so if I'm going up there and performing this ritual, I, I really don't know how the idea came about, but I think it works well in the the poem. Um, and it adds, you know, an interest in second dimension to it. It totally does. I mean, <laughs> as I said, I, I just found it really fascinating. So listen, on your 50th birthday, on the 8th of September last year in 2020, your debut full connect collection, Venus in Pink Marble, was published. Now, the quote that I... I introduced you with from Blackbow Poetry. Mm-hmm. Venus and Pink Marble is a captivating collection full of personal and social history with authentic snapshots of people and places skillfully rendered. How do you feel about that, Gaynor? And can you talk to us about your own personal journey and the influences for Venus and Pink Marble? Wow, where to begin? Um, <laughs> so I, I suppose the thing to say is this collection is probably a a body of work that, that covers five years, you know, from uh, starting to write. And I was just so fortunate that Mark Davidson and the Hedgehog Poetry Press gave me the opportunity to put the book together. I think he did a fabulous job. But yes, it was a long process and there were a lot of people involved along the way. You know, I had several mentors and writing groups that helped to give me feedback on the poems as they were written. And I do feel, particularly the middle section of the book, which is very personal, you know, most of the poems, well, I think all the poems in the middle section are autobiographical and they're either about me or my close family members or my relationships with with them. So there's always that worry, I suppose, when you bear yourself. Of course. And share personal poems, how it'll be received. So it's been really lovely to have the book so well received. And um, I'm so grateful for Black Boy Poetry um, and Matthew M.C. Smith, who, who wrote that review. But yes, it is very much a book about the people and places that have influenced me in my life and when I was thinking about this and and thinking about places I I was looking at the poems and a lot of them are about the people of the place there's a Dublin poem but that poem's about the women of the 1916 Easter Rising and the part they played in that struggle so whilst there are a lot of places in the book it very strongly focuses on the people in those communities and the places. Sure, but they're naturally intertwined, you know. Yeah. So I know it's probably going to be a challenge, but <laughs> but would you like to choose one poem that most suits our, our chat today and read it for us? It was very hard to choose, but I was thinking about living on the Arts Peninsula and my time in Kirkubbin. I have a poem that talks about the day when a herd of cows invaded our lawn. Okay. I've decided to read that because I think it gives a real sense of the friendship within the community that we find there. 
It's called Herd. How hard they were to herd, heaving base, roaming loose, casually chewing cud and looking at us like mad things, delighting in the deliciousness of weed-free grass, thickened by morning dew and lengthened by a good spell. Branded with a stubborn streak, they gathered in a gang and all our shoo-shoo-shooing and be away with you knowing did nothing to make them reconsider. They feasted, trampled, turned lawn to sods. There is a network in villages like this, under the radar communications, bouncing your troubles between walls like white noise. Help arrived before we'd asked for it. Charlie T on a quad, throttling up the driveway, breaking hard, kicking out a gravel cloud. Behind, we Tommy T carried Willow twice his height. They dismounted, approached the cattle sure-footed, sending silent signals, tenderly tapping on flank or rump. The cows responded, filtering into a line, sauntering in pairs down the drive, three pillars up the lane. And it was all done without a word. Swooped shovels, scooped and hurled the still wet pats like slitters into the trailer. Shook mute apologies, then were gone, leaving our dumbfounded laughter breaking the silence against the rape-filled backdrop of their invasion, looking at the trodden, sodden lawn. I just think that reflects, you know, the the sense of community that there is in small villages where it does can be there to help you and it you does haven't asked for it you know it brings a lot of great visuals i mean i'm smiling <laughs> which you can't see because of course you know we're in different places but i'm smiling because i i enjoyed it so much and i loved i mean there's lots of there's lots of great lines in there but i loved it and it was all done without a word Mm-hmm. It says it all because I've, I myself live, you know, in that kind of a, a community also. So excellent. Now, moving back, Gaynor, to Belfast and, you know, the areas that we've mentioned in Northern Ireland, I'm not pinning this down to one particular place. In happier days when, you know, the pandemic is hopefully well under control with vaccines and, and whatnot, if I were to come over and visit, mm-hmm. what? would your recommendations be? Let's start with somewhere to stay. Um, I think I would take you down to Fermanagh to Lusty Bag Island and we would stay in a log cabin at the edge of the water. And we'd that go sounds perfect. Bodine and we'd go to Devonish Island and see the Round Tower. That sounds absolutely wonderful. So the perfect choice. Where sightseeing, what sort of mainstream sites would you want to bring me to and and anything quirky? So the mainstream choice I think would be Mount Stewart House and Gardens on the Arts Peninsula on the shore of Strangford Law. It's a beautiful stately building with great history and tradition and the gardens are just stunning and there's a little folly up on a hill overlooking the lock called the Temple of the Winds. Um, so we would go there and we would have a good exploration of the house and gardens. And then mm-hmm. the quirky um, choice, I would take you on the 
Eastside Heritage Trail, which is a new walk in East Belfast that starts down at the Titanic Quarter in the docks. It's not about the stars of East Belfast, it's about the hidden lives. So along the trail, there are tributes to shipyard workers, including my great-grandfather, who um, was the foreman engineer during the building of Titanic. It pays tribute to shopkeepers and a woman who did a lot of work to improve the working conditions of the mill workers. So it's the hidden lives, the lives you don't hear about. You know, it doesn't include Van Morrison or George Best. It's the the people. It's the real people, obviously. Yes. Isn't it? The real people that, you know, what obviously what each place you know, that, that uh, features in our lives are really made made up with, you know. Um, okay, I'm, I'm loving, so far I'm loving the trip that I'm, I'm going to look forward to in the future. <laughs> what about if we're going to go put on our best frocks and go for a lovely meal out, where is that going to be? I would take you to the Merchant Hotel in a beautiful building and very posh with um, stone steps up to the front and a concierge, you know, with top hat and tails. And inside there are huge chandeliers and we would be like princesses there. Okay, (laughs) that sounds great. I'm going to have to start getting fit for this trip. Uh, (laughs) What about what about somewhere more casual and laid back to eat, you know, on 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 a day where we wanted to go to the bar or something? I would take you to Hollywood to a restaurant called Coast, which is on the main street. And it's very relaxed, but the food is excellent. Mm-hmm. And they make nice cocktails as well. That sounds great. And would we have have enough of a nice time there, or would we want to go to any bar afterwards? I think we'd have a nice time there, but there are several bars along the the main street in Hollywood, so we could always go for a little pub crawl down the main street afterwards. Okay, <laughs> that sounds great. So that's that's. Uh... I have a great agenda worked up between <laughs> yourself and other guests. I'm very much looking forward to, forward to going over at some stage when it's possible, obviously. Um, so, look, we've had a fantastic chat. What are you actually currently working on, Gainer, at the moment? I think I have to say I'm working on the second collection. I haven't really been working on the second collection, but I do have to get working on it soon. Um, I was lucky enough to get an Arts Council grant this year. Which Fantastic. I need some time to write. I'm going to be heading off soon to the River Mill, just outside Downpatrick, which is a lovely writer's retreat. Writing there. Are you already bubbling with themes and ideas or not? Um, simmering. Simmering. Okay. Simmering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, like a lot of people, they've found that the pandemic hasn't been all that good for their their creativity. You know, it's very hard. I think we're all grieving for the lives we used to have and we're in fear of ourselves and our loved ones becoming ill. And so it has been quite quite a challenging time just to, to go through that. And I haven't been as productive probably as I would normally have been or I would like to be, but I'm trying not to put pressure on myself because I know just coping with the daily stresses of, of living through a pandemic is, is enough. It is absolutely enough. And hopefully, you know, it's not too distant future. Of course, it's very hard to, to predict anything at the moment, but that we can actually start to 
you know, have a bit more of a sigh of relief and then no doubt the appreciation and the creativity that will be connected with being able to breathe easier again will be something to look forward to, you know? Yes, absolutely. Now, apart from, from the writer's retreat, is there any place or places that you've been longing to return to or visit for the first time again when it's safe to travel, obviously? Yes, I cannot wait to get back to Galway, especially because there's family there. You know, Michael's aunt lives in in Galway. Um, she married a, a local Galway man um, who was photographer for years for the Tribune. He's infamous for jumping in the presidential car when Kennedy visited <laughs> Galway all those years ago and he got a great shot. You know, um, Kennedy thankfully called up off the, the CIA and he didn't get shot or anything for jumping in the car. Um, what a fantastic story. Yeah. So I just love Galway. I think it's beautiful and it feels like a second home because for a long time we stayed with Michael's aunt and uncle and more recently we've been staying with his cousin and um, she's 10 minutes away from Salt Hill Strand. We just have such a lovely time when we're down there, whether it's sunny or not. You know, there's always things to to do and places to explore. Sounds like something to really look forward to. And apart from the the wonderful family connection that you must be, you know, really looking forward to reconnecting with again, it's also such a creative spot, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, we love to time it with the, the Arts Festival and Tara and Michael's cousin Louise and I will go off to lots of events during the Arts Festival and immerse ourselves in the the culture that that brings. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely fantastic. I'm absolutely delighted, Gaynor, that you were able to join us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me too. For listeners, don't forget to check out all the other interviews in this first series. We've had amazing guests, I have to say, for for a podcast that's brand new, which have included um, Henry MacDonald, Jan Carson, Malachi O'Doherty, Anne Smith, Emma Thorpe, Helen Sharkey, Suzanne Stitch, Maeve Lynn, and Sean Mackle. And we're having the grand finale will be Maureen Boyle. Thanks so much for joining us and listening today. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Creative Places and Faces. We look forward to bringing you more creative insights into places around the world very soon.